0: so I guess we'll just get started.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, how close do I have to sit to this? This is fine? Yeah, it's fine. Okay.
0: Idiopathic intracranial hypertension, also known as the pseudotumor cerebri syndrome, is characterized by elevated intracranial pressure with clinical features of headaches, vision impairment, and occasionally cranial nerve palsies in the absence of a structural lesion on neuroimaging. The latest diagnostic criteria for idiopathic intracranial hypertension, or IIH, were revised in 2013 by Friedman and colleagues, albeit with some hesitation among experts within the field. But thankfully, none of the controversies overlying the recent diagnostic criteria pertain to the neuroimaging features of IIH. So I've asked Dr. Anita Coley, one of the neuroophthalmology fellows here, to go through some of these imaging features of IIH. Welcome to the show, Anita.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I guess, so let's just get started and cut to the chase. What's the most reliable imaging feature of IIH?
1: Well, I would say that no imaging feature is perfect in and of itself. And I think a lot of the decision to get an MRI in the first place has to deal with the examination of the patient and maybe ancillary tests that you would obtain in the clinic first. So I think patients that come in that fit the demographic characteristics of people that usually have this condition, we think that they're overweight, they've gained weight recently, they may be taking certain medications. Those people, we may get an MRI a little quicker because our suspicion may be higher. However, I would caution against getting MRIs in every patient, especially if their examination is normal or there's no compromise of visual function that could be seen on other tests like visual fields and OCTs that we tend to get. However, if you were to order an MRI, I think the greatest sensitivity um, may be seen with certain imaging findings and other imaging findings may be more specific. The ones we tend to look for are optic nerve sheath distension, flattening of the posterior globe, uh, empty cella, and transverse sinus stenosis. However, we found that optic nerve sheath distension is not a very specific finding for patients with pseudotumor cerebri syndrome or that have elevated intracranial pressure because this sign can be seen in patients that don't really have increased intracranial pressure. And we don't really have a normative database to know what is a normal optic nerve sheath size, especially in patients of different ages. You would suspect that if, you know, you had optic nerve sheath distension in a younger child, is that proportionally relevant to the size of their head as opposed to an adult, and could these features even really be compared?
0: It took me a second to realize exactly what Dr. Coley meant here by optic nerve sheath distension. Basically, when you're looking at the T2 sequence of the orbit, you can see the dural sheath surrounding the optic nerve will widen in cases of intracranial hypertension. Conversely, a thinner optic nerve sheath might suggest low intracranial pressure.
1: We do think that their greatest specificity is seen with signs such as transverse sinus stenosis, flattening of the posterior sclera, and uh, flattening of the pituitary. In patients that don't have the classic exam findings of pseudotumor rice syndrome, such as papilledema or a sixth nerve palsy, we tend to rely on these more specific types of imaging findings, transverse sinus stenosis, flattening of the posterior sclera, or empty cella to make the diagnosis.
0: Would you say that more patients have incidentally noted imaging features consistent with IIH or that the imaging is ordered in order to rule out other causes of papilledema?
1: I think we see both, actually. Um, I think it is important to rule out other causes of increased intracranial pressure, such as uh, intracranial lesions, transverse sinus stenosis from a venous sinus thrombosis. So those pictures can be complicated. We also get patients referred into ophthalmology clinic that have had an MRI for evaluation of headache and may have some signs of increased intracranial pressure, and then we see them to rule out papilledema.
0: Say you see two or more of these features together in the same MRI for the same patient. Would that raise your suspicion even further, or is it fair just to have identified one feature consistent with IAH?
1: So we think that these features are additive, such that three of four of the features seen in the same patient could suggest a diagnosis, whereas two of four may not. However, if a patient has papilledema and we get an MRI to rule out some other intracranial lesion or venous sinus thrombosis, and they only have one imaging finding, it doesn't make it less likely that the patient actually has increased intracranial pressure because their exam findings suggest it. So I guess in summary that the more imaging findings you have, the more likely it is to suggest a diagnosis of increased intracranial pressure.
0: And among the revised 2013 criteria for idiopathic intracranial hypertension an MRI meeting three of the four imaging features would be suggestive of IIH in the absence of papilledema. To reach a definite diagnosis of IIH, the patient without papilledema must have unilateral or bilateral sixth nerve palsies in addition to three of the four imaging markers. Moving on kind of to prognosis, are there any imaging features that may indicate a worse prognosis for these patients?
1: So patients may have a worse prognosis if they have more imaging findings than other patients who have less imaging findings, which just suggests that the increased intracranial pressure has been there either for a longer time and could have caused damage already, or their intracranial pressure is just higher. However, patients may have features of increased intracranial pressure or pseudotumors-free syndrome when they actually have other lesions, like an intracranial mass, of course, which carries a different prognosis. But the other one is a venous sinus thrombosis, because in those patients, they may not be able to be treated with medications and diet itself. They may actually need a shunt procedure because their outflow is compromised.
0: Do any of the neuroimaging features we've discussed today improve with treatment?
1: We think that they should. However, this may not actually be the case. We see a lot of patients who do well with weight loss and maybe with the additive effects of Diamox or Topamax. Their papilledema can resolve, and they may still have persistent imaging findings if they get an MRI for another reason, such as an empty cella. Additionally, we see patients who have had an MRI maybe years before they come to see us, don't have papilledema, but may have some imaging findings to suggest that there is increased intracranial pressure. So they may have had increased intracranial pressure at some point, but these Im- imaging findings persist. Additionally, on the neuroophthalmologic exam, sometimes the optic nerve itself becomes gliotic or remodels with having had a papilledema previously, and we don't really think that goes away either.
0: So, what kind of imaging features besides the MRI could you do to better evaluate somebody who? may have had prior papilledema or resolving optic nerve damage from pseudotumor.
1: Right, exactly. So we use a lot of these in the neuro-ophthalmologic clinic. Um, The first one we would think to do is a visual field test. We tend to use visual field tests pretty commonly, which can show peripheral constriction of the visual field that patients may not even notice but can suggest some damage to the optic pathways from previously elevated intracranial pressure or currently elevated intracranial pressure. And the patients who we think um, have had pseudotumorous cerebri syndrome in the past and have lasting damage to their optic nerves, they may appear gliotic, as I mentioned before, which has a certain characteristic that we can see on our fundus examinations. However, in addition, people may have optic nerve pallor, which can be hard to distinguish from other causes of optic nerve damage, like optic neuritis or other compressive optic neuropathies. But we tend to obtain OCT testing of the retinal nerve fiber layer that can show temporal thinning that corresponds to these areas of pallor. And then we can put some kind of quantitative measure on if their pallor is getting worse or the thinning is getting worse. If it were to continue to get worse in the absence of other features of increased intracranial pressure, another cause should be looked for or another scan should be obtained.
0: What would you say is the takeaway message from all of this?
1: So I think pseudotumor cerebri syndrome should be considered, especially in patients that have headaches that don't respond to conventional treatment. And we have to think about this condition not only in those kids that are overweight or adults that are overweight or have taken medications that can cause increased intracranial pressure. Because we've seen this condition in, you know, kids that are very thin and uh, it's a multifactorial type of disease in them. In addition, I think it's important to send them to an ophthalmologist or neuro-ophthalmologist pretty quickly because they could have irreversible vision loss if their condition is not treated adequately or early enough. And then if you get an MRI, I think it should raise your suspicion of having this condition, especially if you have three of the four imaging findings we talked about, which include optic nerve sheath distension, flattening of the posterior globe, empty cella, and transverse sinus stenosis. And of those or we think that transverse sinus stenosis, flattening of the posterior globe, and empty cell tend to be the most specific.
0: Again, that was Dr. Anita Coley, a neuro-ophthalmology fellow, who walked us through the major neuroimaging features of IIH. As always, check out our website at brainwaves.me to see some examples of these findings, and let us know what you think about our show by rating us on iTunes. This episode was produced in part by Erica Mejia and myself. The artist responsible for the music today was Andy Cohen. And I'm Jim Siegler for Brainwaves. Thanks for listening.